Amen. As you read the different gospel narratives, um, there's always those unique statements, the unique wordings that the writers of those gospels use. And in that account from Luke, don't you love there in where he says, why do you seek the living one where the dead would be? The living one. We serve a risen and living Savior. That is why we gather together on the Lord's Day. It was the first day of the week that um, Jesus rose from the dead, and that is why we as the church gather on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. It is such a blessing and such a joy to be able to open the Lord's Word together on this um, special occasion Um, We should never take for granted the ability to gather together with the Lord's people, but especially on these days where where we are celebrating a risen Savior throughout the day, throughout the week even. Um, In thinking through what to preach on this Sunday, I have to admit that there's a bit of a struggle. Um, You think about time like the Christmas season where our minds are just constantly directed to Christ, and, and the same thing is true during this Easter season and on this Easter Sunday. Our minds are especially focused on Christ, and that gives you a little bit of a, of a healthy fear, I think, as you prepare to come before the Lord's Word with the Lord's people. So in a way, there is a, um, a great sense of joy in preparing to come before you this day to to open God's Word with you because I hope and I pray and expect that your hearts are extra prepared today. If you are scrolling through social media, if you're thinking even about just the holiday, your mind as a follower of Christ should be driven to the idea of the resurrection of Christ. So you should come prepared especially for worship on this Sunday. So there is that great joy, but there is also a great weight when you consider opening God's Word to preach Christ on the Resurrection Sunday because we have a glorious Christ. We could not exhaust the glorious Christ if we spent every waking moment for the rest of our lives trying to plumb the depths of the Christ that is revealed in Scripture. And so there's a weightiness when we gather together on this resurrection day to look to the scriptures and to consider our glorious Christ. But with that said, we must put our hand to the plow and dig into God's word. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Paul's letter to the Romans, the book of Romans chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 6 through 11, and that may not have been exactly what you thought you would hear on this um, exact Sunday, but as we get to the text I think you will see that it has a glorious tie-in to not only just the the whole of the gospel, but to the resurrection of Christ. So in this passage, I hope that we will see that Christ is a reconciler. We want to see Christ the reconciler. I'll invite you, if you will, to stand with me as we want to give attention to the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This is God's word. May he bless its reading. You may be seated. And as you're doing so, as the rain quiets and we're able to better focus our hearts and minds, now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, may all glory and honor and praise be to your name, for you are worthy. Glorious in the heavens, splendor and majesty surround you. As the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, as glorious and majestic as you are, you are also a saving God who created a people, who placed your love on a people, who called out a people and has reconciled a people to yourself that we might be your possession for your glory redeemed by the blood of Christ. Lord, as we consider the work of Christ bearing our sin and our curse and our condemnation at the cross, how can we be anything but humbled? And then as we consider that being in the grave on the third day, Jesus rose. Life came back into his body, and he showed that he had defeated sin and death. Considering that, Lord, what can be our response but overwhelming joy? Lord, and with that as the backdrop of our worship service today, how we would ask, how we would seek and beg that you would open and enlighten and illuminate our hearts to the truths of our glorious Christ. Lord, for Christ truly is an endless theme, an endless topic. He is the one whom we could consider for the rest of our lives and never even scratch the surface of his glory, his majesty, and his love, his holiness, and his grace. So, Lord, would you please help us? Would you give us hearts that are properly tuned to the instruction of your word? 
Would you purge and purify us of sin, Lord? Sin is the great deterrent from our ability to hear and submit to your truth. So would you humble and purify our hearts today? Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you write your word upon our hearts? Would you cause the truth to to show us our sin? Would, by your Spirit, you bring us to repentance, break us, and crush us under the weight of our sin, and then build us up, Lord, because we have been reconciled. We have been made to be your friends through this work of Christ. Lord, would you show us Christ? Where else can we go? For in your word, we find the words of eternal life. Lord, glorify yourself to us and among us today. We ask that all that we say and all that we do would bring you honor and glory and praise. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this day is, I think in many ways, a little bit overwhelming to those of us who are in Christ. When you really pause and consider what Christ went through so that you could be saved, how could you respond with anything but this devoted, reverent humility when you consider Christ the reconciler? As we think about Christ, we want to consider all that was accomplished at the cross. And this text will lay that out for us, but just kind of set the stage a little bit. Let's consider what were we before Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see that we were lost, we were dead, we were disobedient, we were controlled by Satan, and we were without hope. That is not only a New Testament concept. Isaiah 64 would show us that we are unclean, we are polluted, we are impure, we were withering as a leaf that had fallen off of the branch and that was going to be that had died and would be swept up in the dust to exist no more. Think about the glorious 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, where Christ tells his disciples about their duty to abide in him. But there's that flip side that we see in John 15, that there's a branch that is dried up and diseased and dead. It is unable to bear fruit. And that fruitless branch is cut off, they were gathered up, they are thrown into the fire, and burned. Apart from Christ, that is your present and your eternal future. You're dead, you're without hope, you're controlled by Satan, and you have an eternal destiny in the lake of fire where you will be punished for your sin for the rest of eternity. But we have a hope. We have a hope, Christ the Reconciler. And as I said, Paul just gloriously and clearly outlines this whole picture of salvation in this passage in Romans chapter 5. He calls these Roman Christians to live as those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. That call extends, obviously, to us today, to live as those reconciled to Christ, those who are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Those who were his enemies, 
who are now called his friends. So there's really a clear proposition from this text that we want to kind of make our our overarching focus today. We see that we must live as those who are reconciled to God by hoping in Christ, by devoting yourself to Christ, and by boasting in Christ alone. Live as those who are reconciled to God through Christ by hoping in Christ, devoting yourselves to Christ, and boasting in Christ alone. Now the backdrop to Romans chapter 5, one of the reasons that I landed on this passage was a sermon that I'd heard a couple months back on the passage before this, and it's striking how well this fits into our study in 1 Peter. For Paul had previously written to those Roman Christians that we must exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character brings hope, and hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So if you think back to 1 Peter, we've been studying the church that needs hope because it's walking through tribulation. And Paul outlines that we have this great hope because we have the Spirit of God poured out into us because we are in Christ. And so that's kind of the run-up to to this glorious explanation of Christ as our reconciler is that Paul lays this groundwork that you will suffer, but you must persevere. You must allow that suffering to build up within you hope and proven character that you would rest in Christ alone. We must understand that we were lost and dead in sin, but we have this great hope because as Paul says in Romans 3.24, We have been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That is why we exult in tribulation, because we have been justified. So as we focus our attention on Christ this morning, friends, we don't do so in a vacuum. This glorious hope of the gospel brings that glorious hope in every circumstance, whether good, bad, or otherwise, We come to Christ with joyful, enduring, eternal hope. So let's look at this text and see this work of Christ. We'll work through it kind of in in three phases. We want to begin at verses 6 and 7 and see our standing before we were made alive in Christ. See that we were helpless before Christ. Paul writes there, For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, one would dare even to die. Now, it's not always standard practice, but I want to build this point backwards. Start at verse 7 and then move to verse 6, because Paul kind of speaks a little bit in reverse here. He says it's kind of a, almost a confusing, kind of a strange-sounding statement. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. So is that a, is that a contrast? What is Paul getting at there? Really, it, he's kind of just building on the same statement. We could paraphrase that with the idea that people don't typically die willingly for their fellow man. Your human nature does not allow for that kind of sacrifice. Now, there are those who willingly put their lives on the line and lay down their lives for 
their fellow man. And praise the Lord for those people. They should be honored for that sacrifice. But your human nature does not allow for that. That is not your natural inclination in the flesh. And so Paul is just making the case that hardly anyone would do that. It would be done with difficulty or rarely or scarcely. That's just not the inclination of human flesh. And he makes the point, and you have to know the whole context of Romans to understand just how ironic this point is, that perhaps, maybe, someone would die for a good or a righteous person. Well, the first three chapters of Romans obliterates anyone's idea that they might be a good person. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he says, despite all of that, if you still consider yourself good, still know that no one would die for you. Scarcely, hardly, rarely. So that's verse 7. So now let's go back to verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So there's two descriptions, two identifications that are ours before Christ. Paul begins by saying that while we were still helpless, while we were still weak, while we were feeble, while we had no power, Christ died for us. And that does not speak to some type of physical weakness or a physical sickness. That is a spiritual impotence, a spiritual powerlessness where you have nothing good in you. You are completely destitute of any type of merit whereby the Lord would love you or desire to place his affection upon you. Now, we ought to pause and consider that for a second. Just think about that in light of verse 7, where, where Paul makes this point that even for a good person, somebody's probably not going to die, but you are helpless. You were weak. You were without anything good or desirous in you, and it's at that time that Christ died for you. There was no beauty. There was no purity. There was no morality. There is nothing in you that would cause the Lord to desire you other than his eternal love and favor. You did not have the strength, you did not have the will, you did not have the nature to save yourself. But even beyond that, you did not have the strength or the will or the nature to even come to Christ on your own. It had to be God's effectual call to you whereby he brought your dead soul to life so that you could see Christ as glorious. The, the, really, this is one word that can kind of draw together our standing before Christ. You were helpless. No good, no power, nothing desirable. Without the Spirit of God working in you, you are helpless. And that's a sad and a poor condition, but Paul heaps more on top of that. Not only were you helpless, but at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for the ungodly. You know, that's kind of a um, biblical term. We kind of maybe have a general idea, but let's look at a couple specific definitions to kind of build up what does it really mean to be ungodly. Thayer's Dictionary defines ungodly as being destitute of reverential awe towards God, 
A godly person reveres God. An ungodly person does not have reverential awe towards the great, mighty, holy creator of all things. But then Vine's dictionary goes even further. It's even more pointed where he says it's not just being irreligious, but it's somebody who acts in disobedience to God's demands. And really, I think we ought to put those two together, that you lack any reverence for the holy creator of all things, and due to that lacking reverence toward God, you act in disobedience. That describes every person before or a part from Christ. You don't revere God. You don't see him as holy and mighty and good. And because of that sense of God, you live according to the lust and the passions of your flesh. Paul kind of spells this out in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, where he writes of the evil of men at the end of times, but really the end of times began when Christ arose from the grave and went back to heaven. So this applies to our time now. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he says, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Paul adds, avoid such men as these. That is the standing, that is the personhood of all apart from Christ. Again, in Romans chapter 5, Paul summarizes it. You're helpless and you're ungodly. But before we can move forward, we also have to briefly look at verse 6, and we'll build on this through the rest of the text, where Paul says, while you're helpless, at the right time, Christ died. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, consider the striking contrast here. You were helpless. You were at war with God. And even so, even in spite of your hatred toward God, it was at God's appointed time that Christ took on human flesh only to go to the cross, only to die for the ungodly. In Galatians 4 verse 4, Paul wrote that when the fullness of time had came, God sent forth his son. Christ came in space and time. This is not just a story or a fable that we read of in an ancient book. Jesus of Nazareth was a real man. He was God in the human flesh who lived a perfect, sinless, holy, righteous life And he died on a wooden Roman cross. At the right time, at the appointed time, when the fullness of time came, Christ came and died. And I think there's a sense in which we can consider this idea of the right time and Christ being applied for people to consider that at the right time, the Lord applies Christ to you. What do I mean by that? The Lord does not apply Christ to a prideful arrogant, puffed up, full of, rev- of, of glorying in your sin type of person. The Lord breaks you. 
The Lord humbles you. The Lord shows you your helplessness and ungodliness. Now, might those be kind of parallel paths that are walked at the same time? Yes, they can. But when the Lord humbles someone, when the Lord breaks someone, it is then that Christ is applied. It is then that the blinders are taken off and that lost soul sees its need for a Savior and turns to Christ in faith and repentance. And it's only then when we see our need and we come to Christ. We could think about it this way, that you come to Christ on God's terms and in God's timing. God sent Christ on his own terms and in his own timing, and you come to Christ only on God's terms and in God's timing. What is God's timing? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. If you are here or if you are hearing the sound of this sermon, if you are not in Christ, today is the day to repent. You have no promise of tomorrow. Turn from your sins, place your hope and your faith in Christ, and give up those sin and come to Christ as Lord and Savior. No man has ever come to Christ without realizing his helpless state. So realize that you are helpless, that you are ungodly. You have a great Christ, a great need for Christ, as Spurgeon said, but you also have a great Christ for your need. So we're helpless before Christ. Moving into verses 8 and 9, we want to continue and continue considering the idea of the death of Christ and see that we are justified by Christ, justified by Christ. Consider verse 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, I want to just stop for a moment and, and encourage you to consider what we see in verse 8. One of the most glorious truths in all of Scripture. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us. How often do you stop and consider the love of God? I was listening to a Paul Washer sermon the other day that he preached at Shepherd's Conference a few weeks back. And he talked about the fact, again, he's in a room full of pastors. And he said, men, what you need to do is tell your churches of God's love for them. That is what spurs God's people on to good works, is to consider the love of God. If you go and keep every command of the Lord, but have not considered his love for you, and are not spurred on by a love for him, then you're just walking in legalism. So what Paul Washer was encouraging is, consider the love of God. God demonstrates his love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we are sinners. Now let's dig into that a little bit more. Consider who God is. God revealed himself in the Old Testament as Yahweh, as the great I am, the self-existing and self-existent one. He has from eternity past been in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, 
in perfect unity, in perfect glory, needing nothing. God decided to create a world. He decided to create man in his own image, that is, with, with eternal souls, souls that will last for the rest of eternity. And in his infinite wisdom, he created this plan of salvation. So consider the love of God in that. He has no need of us. The Lord could have been just as perfectly glorified, one, to have never created you, or two, to have created all people, all of this creation, and never made a way of salvation. The Lord could have been perfectly glorified and would have been perfectly just to do so had it been his, his choosing to send every created soul to hell. But God, in his love, made a way of salvation. Not only did he make a way of salvation, but it was while you were an enemy, while you were a hater of God, while you actively make war against him, he sent Christ for you. He applies Christ to you while you are still in active war against him. How this great love of God should comfort us in affliction. How this love of God should strengthen us in temptation. And how this love of God should convict us in our sin. When you walk through the fires, and again, the, the context of Romans 5 is right there. But as you walk through the fires, consider the love of God. He has promised he will never leave nor forsake you. Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and then calls his sheep to himself. So as you walk through the fiery trial, know that the Lord is with you in that trial. He holds you in that trial. He carries you through that trial. And his presence and his grace will be all the more sweeter because of that trial. When you're in temptation, when you are facing that, that opportunity to lose your temper, to speak in a way that you shouldn't, to give a glance to something you shouldn't, or any other temptation that you face... Again, consider the love of God. That God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for that sin that you are contemplating. Then you ask yourself, am I going to walk in the sin that Christ died for? Or am I going to run from it because I love Christ? And when you have given in to that temptation, when you have committed that sin against that holy and loving God, consider again his love let that love break you. When you sin, you should be broken. When you sin against God, you should not enjoy and revel in breaking God's command and heaping more judgment upon Christ at the cross. If you are a follower and a disciple of cross, your sin was placed upon him at the cross. And so when you sin, you increase that wrath. So you should be convicted by your sin. Now, it is really wholly inadequate for us in the human mind and with the words uh, of inadequate humans to, to try to describe and consider the love of Christ and the love of God in Christ. We're inadequate to do so, but it's also sinful, I think, to neglect to do so. 
because Scripture commands us to consider these things. So may we discipline our hearts and minds to often consider this amazing love, and may we be driven by this great and amazing love. May we respond to this love with love and devotion of our own. When you consider the love that a friend or a family member, a spouse, a child has for you, that builds up love and devotion in you in return for that person. So it should be with the Lord. Consider the, the un, unknowable depths of his love for you and let that spur you on to love in return for him. Now let's continue on to verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Two things to consider in verse 9, that we are justified by his blood and that we are saved from the wrath of God. So we see this love of God kind of parsed out in these ideas of justification and salvation. To be justified is effectively a legal term. It's a term that speaks of God's declaring you just or righteous or um, acceptable before him in Christ. It is, it's a term that speaks of the positional work whereby God declares a sinner righteous or just or free from the penalty of sin. We are declared to be and we are treated as righteous though we are still sinners. That is what it means to be justified by the blood of Christ. How does God do this? How can God be just and the justifier of ungodly, sinful people. Simply and profoundly, it is because of the sacrificial blood of Christ. It is because of this work of Christ that we remember on Easter that God can be just and the justifier. If you're in Romans 5, turn back to Romans chapter 3. And Paul will flesh this out a little bit more for us. Romans chapter 3, we can pick up at um, verse 23. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be what? So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. How is God just and the justifier? Because he publicly displayed Christ as the sacrificial lamb for your sins. The Lord is just and the justifier because Christ paid the price. His blood was poured out at the cross so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have new life, so that the debt of your sin could be paid. How is God just in the justifier? Because the price paid in the blood of Christ is worth infinitely more than your sin. Your sin, yes, is a great, great offense to a holy God. But that offense, praise the Lord, pales in comparison to the infinite worth of the Savior and his blood and his life. 
again, we keep coming back to this in our study in 1 Peter. There in chapter 1, he says that we are redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's because that blood is precious that God is just to consider sinners as righteous because that blood washes your slate clean. Though your sins are as scarlet, you are white as snow because you are covered in Christ. Dear friends, how our lives ought to reflect the cost of our salvation. Think, think about that because that, that's something that we say and think about often. But stop and think about that. Our lives, the way that you live every moment of every day should reflect the cost of your salvation. Those things that are of precious value to you in your life and in your home, where do you put them? They have a prominent place. They have a safe place. They have an honored place. And, and, and you look to those things with joy and you guard and protect them. You want those things to remain valuable. Do you treat the blood of Christ as valuable? Or do you trample underfoot the blood of the covenant and profane the precious blood poured out because you refuse to submit in obedience to the Lord? So we're justified by the blood of Christ and we are saved from the wrath of God through him. Now we don't have time to consider the wrath of God. We are going to keep going, but we don't have time to consider fully in scripture what does the wrath of God looks like but let me tell you it is a terrifying thing the wrath of God poured out on someone for all eternity is the most miserable experience you could ever possibly comprehend but you are saved from that wrath only only because Christ bore that wrath in your place again say that again you are saved from God's wrath through Christ because Christ bore the punishment for you. In Christ, you are legally declared righteousness because punishment was poured out. But thank God you could never bear it. It would take all of eternity for God to punish your sin if that punishment were to fall on you. But the stroke fell on Christ. And you have a mighty Savior who bore that wrath, went to the grave, and rose on the third day. Consider what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14. Paul writes there, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Those decrees against you, your sins that would come up and curse you and condemn you, they were taken out of the way. They weren't wadded up as you would do to a piece of paper and thrown into the fire to be burned. But rather, that piece of paper was taken, it was nailed to Christ on the cross, and then God poured out, the Father poured out his wrath upon the Son. 
think you just you consider the idea of a certificate of decrees and punishment against you. You think think about when you go take out a thirty year mortgage for a house. You think about that certificate of all this money that you have to pay back for a house, and considering it, this uh, you know, as Paul Washer would say, this is a horrible illustration. I kind of wish I hadn't even used it. But you just consider something like that, just this legal type of transaction, where that certificate is taken and completely discarded. But we have to remember that it wasn't just discarded. It was placed upon Christ at the cross. Because God is holy and just. God could not forgive your sin and not punish someone for that sin. So that certificate was nailed to Christ, and you are free, free forever, free eternally. The penalty is removed, and glorious day, one day we will be free from the presence of the flesh and evil and wickedness and sin. How will we escape the wrath of God if we neglect so great a salvation? But you be holy in all of your behavior like the Holy One who called you is holy. Let's move to verses 10 and 11 finally and see, kind of reaching the crescendo. This is one of those passages that just has a clear crescendo towards the end and see that we are reconciled through Christ. Verses 10 and 11. Paul continues, For if while we were enemies... We are reconciled in God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So again, this is the crescendo. We, we see Christ the reconciler. Christ the reconciler in verse 10, and then kind of the the ultimate response of the believer in verse 11. So let's consider the idea of being reconciled. To be reconciled really carries with it the idea of an exchange. It is a full trade. It's not a trade where one side gives something and the other does not give something in return. It is a full trade whereby Christ the righteous trades his righteousness for your condemnation, and then go bears the wrath that that condemnation earned. So the full trade there is, as as Clark mentioned earlier, it is the great exchange where we are given and credited with the righteousness of Christ. Now, friends, you should hear that, and your heart should leap for joy because you must be righteous to go to heaven. You might have your sin removed, but if you're not righteous, you still have no place with God. But you were reconciled. You were an enemy, and you are now called a friend because his righteousness is given while he took your sin upon himself. Now, it's resurrection day, and so I want to consider the resurrection, and this passage allows us to do that. Look at the end of verse 10. We're reconciled to God through the death of his son, and much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, we have to understand the the actual righteousness of Christ and his 33 years on earth matter. 
We needed that perfect righteousness to be credited to our, to our account. But that's not what Paul is referring to here. If we're to go, and we will, go look at cross-references, we'll see that what Paul refers to is the resurrection of Christ, his ascension into glory, and the intercession that is ongoing now until we are called home. Consider Hebrews 7, verse 25. The writer there says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save you forever because he always lives to make intercession. Romans 8, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ lives and therefore you live because he intercedes for you. Jesus said as much himself in John 14, verse 19. He told his disciples, After a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Your hope in eternal life is dependent upon the resurrection of Christ. Because he lives, you will live on to eternity. Now, there's one more kind of cross-reference we can dig into, and it's one I think we mentioned a few times recently, but we'll mention it again because it's such a glorious promise and truth. You are redeemed, you are in Christ, but you still battle sin. 1 John 2, verse 1, there John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, said, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And we could stop there, and that could be a whole sermon. I'm writing these so you will not sin. But, he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. We have a lawyer who comes to our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He stands and intercedes for you. When you sin, he does not condemn you, but he pleads his own blood on your account. When you break the law of God for the thousandth time, when, when his wrath could just fall upon you and he would be just in doing so, rather than doing that, Jesus Christ is your advocate. He sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high and says, no, that one is mine. He is covered in my blood. No, that is mine. She is covered in the precious blood that I poured out on the cross. So because Jesus lives, you have hope. Because Jesus lives, you will live also because he will not lose any of his sheep and he will bring you to himself. That is why the resurrection matters. That is why we glory in the cross, but we don't stop on that good Friday. We glory in the resurrection because as he lives, one day too will we. Now let's go to the crescendo as it pertains to us. Verse 11. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You know, th this is the answer. What do we do with this glorious truth of the gospel? We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, exult to me is kind of a, a tough word. 
It's, it's a tough word to understand, but if you go look at the, the Greek dictionaries, really what it ultimately means and how it's often translated is to boast or to glory in something. So we could kind of effectively read this, not only this, but we also boast and glory in God through Christ. Christ is our hope. He is our boast. He is our glory before God. Paul alludes to this in Galatians 6 verse 14. He said, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what does it mean to exult in God through Christ? Paul hits the nail on the head, no pun intended. It is to glory and hope and rejoice in the cross. And when you glory and hope and rejoice in the cross, the things of the world do not matter. Your desire for sin will decrease. Your desire for righteousness will increase. Those fleshly attacks and temptations, yes, they will still come, but you will quickly be able to fight them off because your glory, your hope, and your joy is in the cross. Your glory and hope and joy is in the Christ who died upon the cross to save you from your sin. That is what it means to exult in God through Christ. It is a life that is transformed, a life that shows the worth of that Savior. So as we consider the work of Christ and the evidence of that work's completion at the cross, really come to the simple conclusion that our hearts must be transformed. So we consider what Christ went through at the cross as we consider that there is victory seen in Jesus at the cross and in the resurrection, our hearts, our desires should be transformed and should be conformed to those of Christ. May we on this resurrection day consider the cost of our sins. May we consider that a price truly had to be paid. And it was paid in full. It was paid in full. And may that cost drive us deeper in our pursuit of holiness. If you can consider the death of Christ, that enormous, horrific death that he died and not be moved, friend, the one thing I would urge you is to consider whether or not you are saved. If you can consider what Christ went through so you could be free from sin, if you consider that and are unmoved, consider whether or not you are in the faith. But at the same time, friends, let's also know that holiness is not the end goal. We must pursue holiness. We must pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But the end goal is God's glory. The end goal is that the name of Christ would be magnified and made much of in the way that we live. The goal is to live a life pleasing to the Lord so that he receives all glory and honor and praise that is due to his name. So may we rest in the sufficiency and the completion of Christ's work at the cross. He did indeed say, it is finished, and praise God, it is finished. It was finished at the cross. His resurrection shows that it was finished. 
But now may we go forth and walk in the power of the resurrection. We receive that same power, the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are in Christ. So may we live in a way that shows that we have God's Holy Spirit in us. It's two final charges, one to any who are not in Christ, and then one to those who are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, if you have not come to Christ in faith and repentance as your Lord and Savior, may today be the day of salvation. May you come to him in faith and repentance. What is faith and repentance? It is believing what the scripture says about Jesus, that he was perfect, that he was fully God and fully man, that he went to the cross, he bore God's wrath in your place, that he went to the grave and rose on the third day and has ascended back on high, back to glory. You believe that, and then when the Lord gives you new life, you turn away from sin. The blood of Christ will prevail for even the vilest of sinners. So if you're not in Christ, I plead with you and I urge you, come to Christ as your Savior. But also for those of you who are in Christ, this is the gathering of the church, the saints of God, those who are in Christ. Would you have more of him? Would you have more time considering his sacrifice? Would you give yourself to more striving against sin? Would you give more of your life to him, more time, more effort, more diligence and discipline? Not because you are a legalist following a set of rules, but because God demonstrated his own love for you that while you are yet an enemy, Christ died for you. So would you consider that and give your life as a living sacrifice to God? That's done by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, by putting on Christ, putting off the flesh, renewing your mind daily in God's word so that the spirit who inspired the word can live in and live through you. So may we walk by the spirit. May we not gratify the desires of the flesh. May we live lives that glorify God for he is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, in